Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Otter Fishing with me, Trevor Topfer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, joining us today is a very special guest, somebody I've really been looking forward to talking to, uh, co-founder and group CEO of new uh, global agency sensation, Overdose Digital. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you for being on the show, mate. Cheers, Trevor. I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get uh, deep into, you know, some of the differences and things that you've seen over the last couple of years, the way in which you've run your incredibly successful business model and uh, drop some, some some interesting advice for people who are in that e-commerce space or maybe they're one of the many people that started a, a side hustle or a little e-commerce business over, over the last couple of years. But before we get into that, Todd, can you just give us a, a give our listeners a, a quick wrap up of, you know, who are you and, and, and what do you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I hate this sort of narcissistic stuff, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm Todd. I'm the uh, co I co-founded Overdose with with Ryan. Um, I'm a, originally a Pom, been living over in New Zealand for fifteen odd years now. Um, we have grown a business out from two of us founding from a a little basement in one of our very first clients um, in Auckland to now uh, probably five or six years later. Um, we are rapidly approaching around about 500 staff around the globe wow. um we are a full service what we call complete commerce consultancy mm -hmm. essentially we look after everything from the digital transformation the whole board level strategy into the uh, user experience customer journeys the design the technical delivery of all those assets <clears throat> and then into the the trading of those assets which is where we probably add the most value in the world so it's um, how do you, how do we help those retailers expand? And that's with disciplines across data and analytics, SEO, performance marketing, mm -hmm. um, international expansion. Um, and yeah, so it, it's kind of a full gamut of uh, digital growth. That's what we do. Yeah, it's a powerhouse. Now, I remember a couple of years ago when I uh, first started working with you guys on mutual clients and things, and it was a, it was a, a growing shop then but it was still very much a, a, a sort of new zealand based and, and and i think you had an office in australia or something by then but now i look at it and just go wow it just seems it seems like every time i check in with you guys there's another two offices opened um you know what's driving this huge growth do you think what's driving the growth i i think it's a a level of shared ambition across all of the shareholders of of the business so we have a really unusual business model in that sense um mm -hmm. I think it's that I personally sold that dream and that vision in. And there's sort of this uh, this nervous, belligerent energy in that fear of missing out. Do you know what I mean, Trevor? Mm -hmm. Where we see opportunities abounding us. And we were fortunate enough, smart enough, combination of the two, to start the right business in, in the right windows. And being able to you know take advantage of those opportunities in, in front of us. And where we've been pretty disruptive in how we've positioned our brand, our service, our kind of authenticity and culture, we just see that the adoption rate has been you know, pretty aggressive of not just clients that wanted to work with us, but people that wanted to join that, I hate to use the word a movement, because it's not a movement by any stretch of the imagination, but just doing shit a little bit differently. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so you know, we, we've uh, broadened our model to where you know there was two of us that were the, the the shareholder founders to now we have 
25 shareholders now. Um, we actually just blooded in an employee. Um, <laughs> What's um, the process, mate? Is there a, is there some kind of ritual that you've got to go through now? I mean, you've, you've obviously uh, had 27 opportunities to get this right. It, it, yeah, so a lot of those people have actually, you know, they've bought into that vision. Um, there's been some acquisitions that we've done along the way there where there's guys that have had, you know, small little burgeoning shops and uh, we've seen incredible potential in those people and decided that, if we're going to be successful, we need to do this collectively and collaboratively along, <laughs> along that 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 path. Uh, so, and then there's other guys who have, you know, jumped out of some big career plays um, and you know moved over to what was a, a startup growth culture. Um, and so, for us to be able to afford those people, to many extents, it was a case of right. We need to, you know, I can't afford your salary, but how do I put something on there that may be worth a million bucks in a couple of years' time? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Um, but there has to be a collective shared energy and value set there. And, and I think for me, when you surround yourselves with other people that share that vision and those values, it's really, really crucial as an entrepreneur to have those people that are driving you to deliver that growth as well. Yeah, um, keeping you accountable, right? Like that, that's that it, sense man. of yeah, that's 100%. Yeah. People relying on me, I've got to, you know, I've got to get up and get on with it, get shit done. Exactly. And and there's just a belligerent level of ambition. And I, and I think some of the Kiwi DNA plays into that as well, Trevor. You know, there's the, I think we're at a distinct advantage of where we live in the world, of where, you know, the the value of the Kiwiness in the world has certainly increased over the past few years. And I think you can attest that to, you know, whether it's putting satellites in the air or being good at rugby or winning Cricket World Cups, but just the the value of being a New Zealander has risen. And, you know, when we're going into conversations can think back you know three four five years ago trying to mm -hmm. speak to big u.s merchants they didn't even know where new zealand was yeah, where, yeah. whereas now that conversation is genuinely ah oh, you guys have kind of got that kiwi underdog spirit which mm -hmm. we really love so even though we're kind of playing big we still act very small and we still believe that you know you get your ass handed to you when you go and go and do business in, in, in the US, you know, when when you realize that you know, even we start to look at Australia as a big market and then you actually realize that the GDP of Australia is less than the GDP of California. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you go, oh, I thought we just got relevancy. And actually we are <laughs> brand recognition <laughs> yeah, completely irrelevant when we go into some of those new markets. And mm -hmm. I like that. I. I, I like the problem solving. I like the challenge of kind of playing from that underdog spirit. We've got a, a bit of a better stack, a bit of a better deck stacked in our favor now where we've got, you know, that portfolio and those, those capability sets to be able to go and deliver a little bit quicker. Um, and essentially the speed of growth has continually grown over those, those five or six years. So um, whilst the percentage number changes, the actual uh, dollar and resources growth that we're going through each year has kind of continued to go in an upward curve for us. Wow. So what are the what are the um, things that you're seeing that are kind of driving e-commerce success? Like a lot of your customers are jumping on board. So you've got a different way of approaching the relationship, the agency kind of partner mm -hmm. relationship. And then some of the things that you're seeing out in the out in the the real world, as they say, that that are driving these sort of businesses that are scaling quickly um, using your model. Yeah, so I don't think that anything we've done is actually new. I think what we've done is we've just done it with a bit of a better style and panache, right? Um, and a bit more authenticity around it. So 
where we originally saw the gap in the market, um, and I came from one of those shops, which was that the traditional space in e-commerce was what we call SI, system integrators. They were just design and build tech guys. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was bugger all correlation between what you were building to what those business outcomes were actually going to be for the organization that you were working with. Um, and so there, there, you know, there were lots of guys and we dabbled with doing revenue share models, success models, and, you know, just sure. contributions and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, we don't do that now. Um, but essentially what we were looking at was if we're going to build the best thing in the world, how do we deconstruct this and what does the actual landscape actually want? So we didn't start from a, from a position of let's do something that works in New Zealand and then try to scale it. We actually said, here's the global vision of where we want to get to. What are those starting points and those building blocks that we need to do to, to build along that? So there was there was a relatively strategic vision behind what we were building. Mm -hmm. And we kind of knew where we needed to be in year three, four and five. But you can't get ahead of yourself and you have to kind of have a number of services and a number of geographies in there. So. We, we set out, you know, quite a few kind of mantras that, that, that we, we live by. One of them is delivering business outcomes was the core parts of that. We started recognizing that the majority of, our, of those that were the incumbents of where we want to be, um, we often use that phrase, who's got my money? You know what I mean? Because everyone you want to work with is currently working with somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's very, very few new businesses that come into our world. They tend to be a business which... Uh, you know, has some solidity and revenue in market and they're looking to have a different approach. The majority of those shops were um, kind of like a big factory, right? So they were either single right. service and incredibly good at a single service, or they were a big global factory where everything was being pushed into offshore teams. Um, and then you'd have, you know, these, you know, that traditional agency thing of where you'd see London, Tokyo, New York, Berlin, and all it really was was a couple of sales dudes that were running around in those markets. Virtual, virtual office assistants, yeah. That's it. Right? <laughs> um, so we ideated out a few pieces from there. One was that we wanted to be multidisciplinary, right? right? The second was that we wanted to focus on the lifetime value of a relationship, not the immediate sort of campaign value, not what <laughs> can I squeeze out of you today. What's the piece of work we're doing now and how much can I make on it? Yeah, that, that's that, it. Right? That, right? And, and, and genuinely aligning our invoices and our deliverables against their strategic visions, right? And not just a, hey, we'd like to have subscriptions, but hey, we'd actually like to see this kind of growth curve in our business. So how do we imply all of those services against them? We also wanted to be locally relevant, not just in a service mindset, but in a cultural mindset as well. Sure. So I think that's you, where a lot of the shops go wrong. They, do. they don't have people in on the ground that understand the, the you know the intricacies of that local market. I oh, do look, you know, um, jumping from you know New Zealand to Australia, it's not a. It felt like a really hard jump, mm -hmm. but now having to you know having entered into Southeast Asian, US, you know, German markets, you're like, oh damn, you know, we've we've actually not just crossed language, we've crossed culture and we've crossed time zone. Um, just even how you know those consumers engage in a digital lens, right? Um, you go up into Southeast Asia and people don't tend to buy off of branded .com websites, right? Mm. They go on to Sephora, Lazada, Alibaba. It's a marketplace first environment. They don't pick up Instagram. They pick up WeChat. You know, they don't search on Google. They search on Weibo, right? So how are you, you, you literally need to relearn the market every time. And that's what really gets me going, man, is that when you go into those new spaces, and, you know, you get slapped in the face. Okay. And like, well, well, dude, you know, I, I love being the idiot in the room. 
because it means yeah, yeah. That, that, that there's growth and learnings through there. Mm-hmm. What that also meant was that we had to bring similarly like-minded people to ourselves on board in those new markets where they had that local cultural relevancy. And that's mm-hmm. not just digital, man. It's knowing, you know, who, who just won Culture. the Super Bowl, yeah. you know, what yeah. people are listening to on the radio. Where's the fucking latest protests, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually having a genuine heart-to-heart culturally related conversation. So not only do you understand their consumers, but you understand the dynamics of their business, their competitors and stuff like that. So that's where we saw looking at it from the other way. It also empowers you, right? Like you have the ability to interpret a brand or product through all of those different lenses and, and factor that into account depending on which market people are looking at entering, all of those sorts of things, right? That's it, man. Yep. Um, and, and fundamentally, people want to work with people they like and that they relate with, right? Um, you know, we are a, a people-based industry and business. We're a relationship-based business. And if you don't understand people, you're never going to understand their business. Right? Well, we're so, a tribal race, I think, you know, like it, 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 it strikes us at DNA level. It's, it's foreign to us to work yeah. with that, you know, outside that local kind of tribal state. So um, <clears throat> clearly the way in which you approach your relationship, the way uh, you approach that um almost like that aligning incentives and, and, and getting on the same page is clearly working. What about when businesses are coming in and they've, you know, that they've got a product, but they're not really savvy on how to move that product in a new digital kind of global world. What does that look like? What are the sorts of things that they should be thinking about to get themselves ready for, for something like that? Yeah. So a lot of brands that we see, they, you know, and, and it, it, this goes into that, you know, rather cliched kind of Simon Sinek world of your, your, your why, how, what, right? But um, we often see that we've either got brands that understand their why, but don't really understand their product. So they're coming from this incredible space of eco-conscience, yeah. uh, diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And they're very cause-driven in what they are. Um, and they have an incredible set of values behind them, but they don't really understand how I'm engaging with the consumer to purchase that product. Mm-hmm. There's, this, there's this essential, I believe in this, so you should believe in this. And here's a product that will allow me to monetize this business with you, right? And that tends to get lost. Or you see them on the other side of the equation where they've delivered an incredible product, be it through you know, price or positioning, whatever it may be, but they don't really understand why they exist, right? Um, so you know, just because you've landed the, the license to import a new product into New Zealand that the New Zealand market hasn't ever seen before, has anyone actually qualified that the market wants that product? Right? Mm. Just because it worked in the US, is it going to work here? So a lot of our upfront work is that connectivity of really trying to understand where does your product fit in the market? Where's your consumer? Where's the channels where they're engaging content? Um, is this a somebody else is buying your product from another channel? Or is this a we actually need to take people through an educational lens and communicate to them, this is the problem you didn't know existed in your life. And vis-a-vis, this is why you need our, our solution to, to do that. So there's never one blanket answer to that. And I think what you actually need to do as a brand is trying, you know, as a young burgeoning brand, trying to keep all those plates spinning of where do I exist in the world? What's my customer buying? What's my distribution channels? All those things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not impossible to keep all those plates spinning. Um, so a lot of the time you almost need to spin those plates individually and target on each one of those. So it might be right. We're going to focus on growing our list and our consumer recognition. Now we're going to grow our, our share of voice. Now we're going to actually start driving conversion. Now we're going to do a capital raise because we need to spend a million bucks on, on marketing, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, 
the danger we often see is people trying to do all of those things all at once, and you end up doing a piss poor, mediocre job at most of them, um, and wonder why it failed. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, we will always look at a new prospect of what we call right sizing and mm-hmm. fitting. What does your budget fit into where your ambitions fit? Right. Yeah, right. And in many cases, <laughs> there's been some pretty interesting conversations oh, at times, I'm sure. We actually got a beautiful review on Google the other day, which was a client who reviewed us in because we turned them down and we told them they were bonkers. We literally said, what you want to achieve is just not viable with, with that budget. Um, you know, and you know, they had, you know, a couple of hundred grand grand to spend, but they mm-hmm. their ambition levels just didn't match. I said, look, we can't consciously take that money off of you, knowing that those results are completely not yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and you see it very often where even people i'm going to spin up a marketplace to do this i'm going to be the new zealand etsy right i'm going to be this i'm going to be that so people need to understand that you know to to drive that kind of market awareness you know a trade me is spending tens of millions of dollars a year to keep that consumer engaged and mm-hmm. you're not going to disrupt that market unless you've got cash behind it exactly. it's only so far that friends and family and personal reference goes um, and you see mm-hmm. a lot of these businesses that just peak and trough and they get this immediate adoption, but they don't have that actual you know, cash capability to drive into a fully sustainable business. Mm-hmm. And I think that that concept of sustainability is really key for us. We, we value building long-term relationships, which vis-a-vis means that we need to be build sustainable businesses for our clients as well. And yeah. they have to be trading in five, 10 years time and going on an upward curve to, you know, to, to be able to, to achieve that. Yeah, so having realistic kind of um, expectations of what you can do in the time that you've got, given your resources, whatever you you, you kind of have, um, for a lot of these people, it might be themselves or maybe one them and a friend or a husband and wife or whatever that looks like. So it's having realistic expectations of what that that sort of resourcing and then the financial side of it and what you can expect to achieve. I really like the idea of uh, focusing on one plate spinning at a time. Um, I think it's really important uh, that that small businesses do that and and think about the way they that the strategic way they kind of put that roadmap together, right? Which plates mm-hmm. do I spin in which order and why? Um, so I, I'd be interested to hear if you've got any more thoughts around that. Like, do you do you have any sort of frameworks or models that you're using for e-commerce businesses that that help you know them build that roadmap and 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 that journey out? Not per se as a framework. Um, well, we do, but it's a it's about a, a one-month audit process of a framework rather than a you know something to uh, use magical steps and shake some very dust on it. Exactly, and and everyone comes in into the room with a different set of qualities and capabilities, right? Um, one of the areas we see, and I'm, I'm sure you see this in your world as well, Trevor, is brands doing their own self-diagnosis and self-prescription by things I read on the internet, right? Um, there's value to that. There's value to personal research, right? Um, I just, you know, for, for, for me, Googling something up isn't research. Googling something up is actually self-validation of a it's confirmation bias. I was just going to say, yeah. 100%. Yeah. 90% um, of business plans are just confirmation bias, right? They, they go, I have this idea. I'm sure this is right. Now let me prove it. And let me find someone that agrees with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The, the biggest value I can give you there is that when you're going and you're speaking to subject matter experts, 
don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Don't go into those conversations with a, a self-diagnosis and your own prescription, right? Mm-hmm. It's not WebMD, right? We haven't all got brain cancer because <laughs> we've got a headache, right? Um, and, you know, wh- whether you're dealing with, you know, PR or brand or marketing, right, you've addressed and gone out and reached out to those people because you either see value in what they do or you understand that there is a, you know, a lack of skill set in either yourself mm-hmm. or your own team. So that level of self-awareness and the very best entrepreneurs that we work with are those guys that come in and go, I don't know. You show yeah. me. Tell yeah. me the way. Tell me the direction. Find me somebody who I should be talking to about that. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So, um, yes, come into the room with ideas. Bring in experts around you. Surround yourself with other people that have been on that journey. But also don't assume that the past predicates the future, right? And especially mm. in, in, in terms of, of technologies, you know. The technologies we're building on in 2022 and 2023 were not the technologies we were building on in 2020 and 2019, right? Mm-hmm. Now, those techs, the tech is still relevant. And there's still a lot of merchants making a lot of money off those techs, but they're not the bits of kit that you go and buy today necessarily, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's a constantly moving landscape. So, yes, be aware of your competitors, look around you, but have your own vision and have that self-awareness to know, I, know, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm going to speak to the experts and I'm going to let them give me that direction. Mm-mm. And you'll find, you know, the the New Zealand and Australian agency and, you know, that specialist market, it's an incredibly supportive market, right? Um, you know, they are it, it's full of genuinely passionate people who want to see commercial success for mm-hmm. our country. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that will give out free advice, free direction, that will push you in the right space, mm-hmm. will only want to take your money off you if they know that you're, you're, you're going to succeed. Get out of it, yeah. Um, no agencies want losses on their on their record, right? Well, there is no value because there's two degrees of separation between all of us, right? I was just going to say, Auckland's such a small market. You know, even even when you spread into Australia and New Zealand, you're still in a pretty small market, no matter what your niche is or your vertical is. So it doesn't it's take long stupid. for you to yeah. fuck your reputation up doing stupid stuff, right? That's it, man. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I think in answer to, to your question, is there a framework? Yes, but the framework differs for every individual based on your ambitions, your skill levels, where you're actually at mm-hmm. in, in, in that process. There's different agencies for where you're at different points of your life cycle, right? So we don't tend to work with many, hey, I'm just starting a business in New Zealand. We're, you know, hand on heart, probably a bit too expensive for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's other services out there which will allow you to individually upskill. Um, I think you're good mates with Glenn at Connector, right? Yeah. You know, Glenn provides an incredible service for, um, he actually coached my wife, right, where she wanted to get into digital and she couldn't afford us. So um, she, she did some <laughs> you get training. a family discount, mate. There you go. <laughs> too, many, you go. too many cooks in the kitchen now. You can't squeeze in a family discount anymore. <laughs> Exactly, mate. Um, but, um, you, you know, so that level of, hey, here's your entry level. And then Glenn mm-hmm. provides another service, which is, right, here's your scale-up level, yeah. right? And then, you know, Glenn would probably put his hands in the air and say, right, if you're looking Amazing. to go global and enter regional markets and open up big distribution centers, he won't oversell you a product that he doesn't provide either, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a space and a journey in the market for that. And a lot of us, you know, we share prospects and leads around us. And if we don't think something's right for us, We'll say, you know, you need to go and speak to Glenn and go through this first two years of your evolution on that path. Totally. Um, so, yeah, just um, pick the right people, surround yourself with authentic people, speak to their clients. Honestly, if the best thing you can go and do is ask ask for a, a referral in there and just be 
humble and self-aware and transparent and let good people give you good advice. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, there's a there's a huge temptation for entrepreneurs and startup businesses and things these days to just self-educate and just go everywhere online and figure out, okay, oh, now I need to figure out this so they do a Google. And you can get a pretty long way, you know? right? Yeah, you can. You can scoot, but you're only one person, man. There's only so many hours mm-hmm. in the day, you know? So like you say, you become mediocre at a lot of different things rather than being good at what you do, understanding what that is, being self-aware enough to go, this is my lane and, and when it's this, I'm happy. And if it's outside of that, fuck, I'd rather somebody else did it anyway. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, go and build that that team and that network or partner with the right agency, whatever that might look like. Um, yeah, as you were saying, depending on your stage in the business. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things I, I like about Overdose is your this, this sense of being platform agnostic. Uh, I, I think there's a, a huge amount of um, saturation mm-hmm. in this sort of digital landscape at the moment where, you know, if I'm a, I don't know, I don't want to point the finger at any anyone or anything, but if I have a particular, you know, relationship with a certain platform or I have a particular skill set with inside a certain platform, then that's typically the platform I'm going to recommend that's the right one for you, sir. So tell me a little bit about uh, how that model came to be and, and, and what some of the impacts that, that being, being agnostic has, what some of the advantages and opportunities that provides. For sure, yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Which is that if you go to an agency that specialises in one product, they're going to recommend that product to you. It's a you know because it, it's the only thing that they they've got to sell. And I don't think they're doing that maliciously. I think what actually happens though is that they will start to squeeze your business into that piece of kit, mm. right, to make it work. Um, and you know, I'd say eight nine times out of ten, it's probably okay. You know what I mean? Um, there is the odd scenario where you're like, Jesus, that was a really poor sell mm. and you bought into a, yeah. a bit of a but problem. Yeah, It doesn't happen as aggressively in market as it used to now because there's there's so much availability to, to content. You know, no one's out there. I, I don't believe anyone's out there maliciously trying to, you know, uh, you know take businesses in the wrong direction. Um, but we always decided that if we wanted to be in a mindset of, and that goes back to our starting conversation of how do we be this ideal agency for any merchant in the world? And to be able to do that, you have to become a trusted advisor. You have to be in a position where you can give genuine, authentic advice and that you 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 fucking treat their money like your own. Mm. Right? And if you're spending somebody else's money and you want them to be spending money with you in two years time, you need to be highly responsible for the way that that capital is um, expensed. Yeah. So. We, we obviously, you know, couldn't take on everything at once. It's something we had to scale through. Um, so from a business perspective, we've been reinvesting our profits back in for the past five years. We've never paid a dividend out mm-hmm. to any of our shareholders. On the flip side, we've also never gone and raised capital, Trevor. We, we, we've only ever traded out of our cash flows because we wanted to retain the control in driving the direction of the business that we wanted, not what a, a VC or an investor wanted. So... That's always been a cautious exercise. Um, Must be a tough call, right? Because as soon as you start to build some traction and you start turning a few heads, you know, you don't have to scratch too deep to find funding in in, in some cases. So was there ever an opportunity for you where you had to go, fuck, (laughs) you're burning the hand, man. You know, this is now a tough decision, right? We're talking weekly, if not monthly, we get offered that. Yeah. Um, And um, I I don't think it's necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's a personal thing. It's Mm. where we wanted to be, which was, we embraced a few of those conversations. Um, you know, we had a couple of houses where, you know, it would literally have paid off the mortgage and set you up on the boat and, you know, everything was there and mm-hmm. it removed all that cash flow pressure. It gave you a one-year runway. But I also kind of feel that 
we do our best work. And I mean that from a business growth perspective with our backs against the wall. Yeah. Um, I think, and, you know, all, right. Like when the, sh- when the chips are down, if you believe in something bad enough, you're just prepared to go with it, you know, like whatever it takes. Well, we literally had that conversation with the VC, which was, you know, if we give you 10 million bucks, what are you going to do with it? And my answer was, I don't know, because I've never had 10 million bucks in my hand that someone said, please go and spend it, right? Um, it's like, well, can, can you use this to accelerate into these markets and those markets and those markets? It's like, well, the fact that we didn't have that capital to hand when we wanted to enter those markets made us get super creative, right? Real kind of, you know, guerrilla hustle of how do you, how do you enter into these new spaces? How do you bring new talent on board? How do you get creative with your model? Not just with cash being the answer. And I think that that leads to more authentic conversations and pushes you in better directions. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Um, what were we talking about? Agnostic. Yeah, um, yeah. We've basically been tracking that cash in and been building out those capability sets, both across services. So, you know, we started with tech and design. We then added in marketing. We then added in search. We've now added a data and analytics team. Um, probably later this year, we will add a global marketplaces team for doing a proper cross-border services business. Right. Um, we run all that under one roof. From a tech perspective, we started on open source technology, which was then the Magento world, now in the Adobe world. Mm-hmm. Still really important to our DNA as a company. We then, you know, as SaaS was, was growing out through there, we took on your Shopify Pluses and your big commerces. Now the big trend in market is in the composable commerce space. So we're working with platforms like your commerce tools and um, you know, there's these open source CMSs of your contentfuls and content stacks and front end as a services of um, Frontastic and Deity. And you know, there's hundreds of these new bits of kit that are hitting the market pretty much every week. And you know, some of them are getting you know crazy you know half billion dollar valuations with three clients kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so what so 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 what we've always done from that perspective is we kind of followed the market and followed the money to a certain extent of where right. if you can see that this technology is attracting $100 million worth of VC investment, you know that that technology is going to be well-funded for the next two or three years, and they're going to invest in marketing. They're going to invest in product. They're going to have some impact out there, right? Um, I wish we could be truly agnostic and cover every single piece of technology out there, um, but we don't because it's too much. Um, We currently deliver on about six different platforms, and they have dedicated technical teams that sit, that sit behind them. We could probably take on 20 if we you know, could take everything in our pipeline. Mm-hmm. But what we found from that distribution of services is that we don't have to run your tech to be of value to your business. So, for example, someone like, um, think of a couple of Kiwi clients, people like um, Life Pharmacy, Briscoe's, Rebel Sport. We don't run their tech, right? Um, they're on a technical platform. We don't support um, but we still look after them either from a strategy, a marketing, a data, a user experience, a customer onboarding, uh, a future vision, talking with their boards. You know, um, There's always something which we can be of value in there, and we don't just have to be a tech business. And that's where those old school SIs were really struggling, which was that unless you buy our piece of kit, I've got nothing else to sell you. You know what yeah. I mean? And my value is directly aligned to that piece of kit. And if that piece of kit is the hottest piece of kit in market, then you're on a great trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. But those hot pieces of kit, they change. And it's sort of like about an 18-month to three-year cycle where you see that being the hottest platform. And usually the hottest platform is directly correlated to how much that company is spending on advertising and sales teams and marketing and events, right? Um, You know, you will see in market 
over here, everyone knows who Shopify is, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much everyone has heard of Magento or the Adobe products, right? I'd say most in the industry have heard of big commerce, but not everyone who's out there as a, a retailer side has done that. But they've done a great job in doing that. You'll see that commerce tools as a product, you'll see dramatic acceleration in that. You'll see this product coming out of South America called VTEX, V-T-E-X. They've just been launching um, their offices up in Southeast Asia and Singapore, making massive investments into the Australian market to gain traction there. And to a certain extent, they will win. Whether that win stays becomes highly aligned to who is your partner network and did you have success in what was those good delivery models. But just because it's got the most noise doesn't always mean it's the best product. But often it means they've got the most money and are investing in the future of where that product's going. So, so what's always- driving all these different products, right? They've all got to come to market with something unique about them. Is it functionality based? Is it customer experience that they're invest that, 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 that they're mm-hmm. battling on? You know, how is there so much room? You know, and, and how is the e-commerce landscape changing or consumer behavior on that on that landscape changing to it? allow this growth and stuff. If you look at the historical trends of commerce, they followed the the trends of how we have changed working with our internet-based devices, right? Um, If you you go way back, we were installing, you know, WebSphere from CD-ROMs directly onto your server in your downstairs cupboard, right? Um, And it was this closed source platform that you did what you did on, right? Mm -hmm. Then the next revelation from there was that concept of open source which no one had seen before and that's where basically people were giving away the entire source code and you could start getting really deep in that that built up these really huge developer communities behind the scenes because you could make a career of being a consultant in working on one of these platforms and making it do whatever you needed to do rife amount of problems came off the back of that but it accelerated the technology incredibly then came SaaS, which was like right this is actually quite expensive and hard to do some of this big open source enterprise stuff. Um, it's not particularly accessible for your small market entry retailer. So then your Shopify's of the world appear. Right? Mm-hmm. You then saw probably the most latest uh, version of that was kind of enterprise SaaS, right? Which is where you've got products like Shopify that then develop Shopify Plus, right? You've got people like Big Commerce that sit in that place. It's a much more extensible platform, right? Where they were trying to merge that open source and enterprise space. So all of them saw that, right, we've got these scaling retailers. How do we take these concepts and speed and price to market of SaaS and scale that through? Now what you've got is you've got this concept of composable commerce, which is where commerce has become so big. It's massive in terms of what you need, right? It's not just a cart, right? It's your email, your SMS, your personalization, your your different payments, right? Your CRM, your ERP, your integrations, your PIM, your DAMs, right? It's just this plethora. And so what started to happen through there is that you've seen almost like um, design pattern thinking where you have that flare and funneling, right? Mm-hmm. Where you see this consolidation of services, everyone coming together saying, I want this one platform that cures all of my needs, right? Yeah. Then you started to see it started to diversify where there's apps and extensions and how can I kind of enhance that functionality? And where composable is, is how do I break that into slightly bigger Lego bricks, right? Where's my... Um, One product that is just incredible at search, is incredible at marketing, is incredible at fulfillment, fulfillment, my CRO, right? And and you're you're starting to build that together and you're doing it, you know, historically you were doing that around one pillar. So you'd choose your commerce stack, Mm -hmm. you know, almost like your flagpole, and then you'd be putting other options on there. Now what's happening through composability is that the technology is driving in a direction where 
um, all of the interoperability of those pieces are allowing you to move those Lego bricks in and out a lot more cohesively. Now, the truth of the matter is there is very, very, very few retailers, I'd say in the world, that are truly doing full composable commerce, right? What they're mm -hmm. actually doing is hybrid commerce. And they're taking one of their legacy stacks that they spent millions of dollars on, yeah. be it your old school ERP or point of sale or e-commerce platform. Oh, Microsoft Dynamics. That's it, bro. <laughs> and they're slowly strangling it in that direction. So what has to happen is that there's an over-indexing in, in, in that world. But mm -hmm. we naturally start to get to a space of consolidation again. And the reason you'll get to consolidation is because the majority of these products are VC-backed, right? They're VC-backed, and VCs want an exit on their money the majority of the time, right? So you will see... into each other, yeah. That's it, man, right? And, and there's enough Goliaths in the world of your, your Adobe's, your Oracle's, your Facebook's, Amazon's, right, um, SAP's of, of, of the world who have an obligation to deliver commerce as a service. So they are consistently looking at where is the directional trend happening in market, and at what point do we want to build it? And what point do we want to buy it, right? And where do I pick up these, these pieces of tech? So you'll naturally see both by the bias of big, large houses that need to have commerce. And quite interestingly, if you look at a lot of those big players, some of them have some pretty poor commerce capabilities. Like Microsoft has a commerce product, but yeah, you wouldn't really be kind of going there unless you're using their ERP services, right? Mm -hmm. I, can, I can tell you that Microsoft uses Adobe products to sell Microsoft online right so if, if you go and buy a microsoft laptop you're actually buying off of an adobe website which is interesting um it's interesting. If, you look, if you look at oracle right um oracle commerce you know used to be a thing and you know they've historically bought um email platforms which they you know have kind of been there and have, have, have died away but e-commerce isn't going away so you look at those products and they're going to have to buy something in market you look at amazon they're going to have to diversify at some point where you can't run everything through a marketplace, right? They actually bought, and it was pretty stealth, they bought a little Kiwi startup, uh, sorry, a little Aussie startup called Sells, S-E-L-Z, about two years ago, which right. was kind of like a, it was a Shopify-style SaaS e-commerce platform. It was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was coming up in places. And they bought that, and there was a lot of people thinking, right, this is their first play into allowing you to run Amazon on your own .com mm -hmm. and actually use Amazon as a fulfillment service behind a front end. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook at some point, you know, they've tried a million and one times to, you know, ad adopt commerce into their platform and it kind of works and then drifts away all the time. Right. There's other marketplaces or, you know, the little shop on your, your Instagram pages. So I expect that you'll see consolidation will always happen. And as I say, it's sort of like this 18 month, three year trend of where everything's kind of going in and going out. The space where I think you'll see the next evolution is, um, all of those large platforms, especially if you looked at your Salesforce and your Adobe, they're all moving in this direction of a decomposed, composable environment, right? And what they're doing is they're taking their big monolithic thing with one logo, and they're componentizing that and breaking it all out into services. So you can mm -hmm. kind of go and choose all your pizza toppings as you need them, right? right? So what they're doing is they're following the trend of what's in industry. And that's why composable isn't a oh, should we have a look at it? It's an inevitable, because even mm -hmm. if you're on those platforms, they're architecting it there. You know, Even Shopify have you know, introduced these products of hydrogen and oxygen, and it's, a, it's actually starting to break apart the platform so you can choose your own adventure on them. Right? Gotcha. So that's the next big evolution, and you'll see people talking about DXPs, digital experience platforms. 
that consolidation of services and the breaking apart of their own services and everything becoming a little bit more API driven, right? So you'll see them, you know, like Salesforce bought MuleSoft quite a way back, right? And they've also yep. bought Slack, right? So mm -hmm. you're going to see that becoming, how do I talk between these platforms? How can I be enterprise at scale that do all these best things of SaaS as well? And that's really what Composable and Mac is all about. Mm -hmm. um, but but I reckon in three years' time, we'll be talking about some other shit as well, Trevor. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, well, three years ago, we would have been talking about something else. In three years' time, we'll be in the metaverse, mate. You and I will be sitting in some sort of virtual space, having a weird-ass conversation. You'll be a rabbit. I'll be a moose. I actually know. bought my, my, my son an Oculus for Christmas. Um, right. I, I could not think of anything worse than doing in-person meetings with a <laughs> headset on. That's a fucking Oculus. <laughs> it is fun for, 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 for playing mini golf on and stuff like that. But I hate yeah. I think where where you will see the next round of evolution in about you know three years' time, there's some platforms that are starting to dabble with it now, which is about where you start to have a truly unified view of commerce, right? Which is where you start bringing the point of sale and your commerce platform is is one unified entity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Shopify does that well at the moment where they've got a POS product in there. It's probably Square have done that. They've been they were an early mover in that space and they seem to be doing well in the US. Um, but I think the space of where this extends out to is the in-store experience as well. Right. So you'll 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 start to see that the you're checking into store with your mobile phone, right? It's either mm -hmm. doing some RFID or you're scanning a, a code, right? Or it's recognized that you come in. We've seen this through some of the Amazon stores, right? Of where it is a completely single unified experience of where you are it's a single brand environment and it's where we've all been trying to gravitate towards still at the moment today omni-channel kind of means we've got a website and we've got a store and you can do click and collect that's kind of where most people's omni-channel stops and starts mm -hmm. really mature retailers they're fully integrating their assets they're building out customer data platforms right they're you know um we've got a few retailers now where they're working on how do I buy in store, get delivered to home, and never speak to anyone in that store? Right, I'm going around building a cart in my in that. What about subscription-based businesses and things like that? How does that play into all of this? Like, I had this theory yeah. uh, when Amazon kind of signaled a few years ago that they had those those buttons that you could kind of pre-program and say, "This is my favorite dishwashing liquid." I've got the dishwashing liquid button under the counter, and I hit that, and my dishwashing liquid turns up in a couple of days. You know, yeah, so I mean, subscription model. How does that play into this? So I think that that's one of the next rounds of, again, where Composable will play into that because you're going into IoT stuff, right, where mm -hmm. your fridge and your, your washing machine are connected. Um, I think anything which requires you to add an additional piece of electronics to your life has a very limited life expectancy. If it's not connected through your phone, there's an unlikeliness that it's going to adopt, right? Mm -hmm. I do not want, you know, a tide pole. All over my house. Yeah. You know, all, all <laughs> it's blue and everything house. else is fucking red. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I expect you will see that level of integration. Um, mm -hmm. I expect you will see a lot more connectivity between product and digital. So um, I don't know if I can say, but for very, very, very large pet retailers, we will be launching, you know, um, <laughs> the ability to subscribe to products in store, right? So you can walk in store, scan the product, log a subscription online, and you're done. That was the yep. whole engagement. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about that, Trevor, right, is that you've gone from a potential $100 sale for a 20 kilo bag bag of dog food into now a subscription with an average life expectancy of 18 months. And it was actually an $1,800 transaction that you've done in theory, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and you have removed your competitors from the market because you've locked them into that kind of deal and you you're providing service and convenience and a customer relationship through, through there as well so but i expect you'll see that not just being in store that's coming into how do i do my life cycle marketing um how do i uh, really connect with that product when it's in my home. Um, a lot of what's happening in the B2B space is starting to become QR code driven as well. Um, we look after a big retailer in um, in Australia that's got hundreds of thousands of SKUs of nuts and bolts, right? Um, and the tradie doesn't necessarily want to go and log on to that website and have to type in, I want that screw of that thread length of, you know, a hex top and where the screw starts here. They'd like, a thousand permutations of one one screw. So instead of that, you scan the barcode or the QR code on the back of it, and it adds that to your cart, right? mm -hmm. or directly takes you to that page. Um, we've got homeware retailers where we're starting to see that um, how can we make the mobile phone an experiential device rather than just a you know transactional communication. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if if you're going into a Harvey Norman's and you're looking at an oven. Why can't you scan a QR code and see Jamie Oliver cooking on it and see how, you know, these are the other appliances that go with it. Here's all the recipes you're going to go with it. This is why it's got self-cleaning, right? So it, it's got that content. And where the really mature retailers are being successful is when if you can get to a point where your customer can leave your showroom, your physical store, and you still have confidence that a conversion is about to happen, that's when you've cracked on your channel. Right. right. That's where, you know, I've got to hook in. Right. They've mm -hmm. come on the website. They've added it to a wish list. Right. Um, they've connected a seller with that wish list. They're going home. They're talking to, to the wife, to the husband, validating it. They're ARing it in into their room. That's where digital is going to start to evolve to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally agree. I really love this idea of this crossover between traditional physical bricks and mortar and how they can think a little bit outside the box and, and take advantage of digital and, 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 how does it how does it work because we live in a time right now where anything's possible i think if you've got enough time money and skills you can pretty much create any kind of digital experience that you want mm -hmm. so i think bricks and mortar stores service-based industries things that aren't traditionally come to mind when you think of e-commerce and now in an in, in a world where they can create experiences subscriptions different ways of in, in, interacting with their customers that, that that can be leveraged by digital and then they're less vulnerable to this widening gap with between the sort of digital haves and the digital have-nots which is i'm sure something that you see a lot when you you were talking earlier about some of these retailers coming in and they've got a shit show of a, a stack behind them and you sort of raise your eyebrows and go you did how much last year and what the fuck is going on here so there's this 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 gap that I talk about a bit on, on, on this show where I think a lot of small businesses don't even know what they're up against. They don't even realize what's going on in this digital space. So challenging them to think about it and get involved and find out, you know, what is, how does it translate and what is the experience? Yeah, it, it's a, you know, I know a lot of us look at some of these valuations and these VC plays that are happening in these products, but that's genuinely where it starts. Those are the guys that are progressing the market, right? Because that's where the the dollar investment is going into building products. And when you reverse engineer the economics behind some of those products of, you know, they're, they're charging you 500 bucks a month for access to this piece of kit. You know, there's been millions and millions of dollars spent to get to that point, you know? So they're advancing it. I think the other place to always keep an eye on and where we see most innovation in market comes from is actually the luxury market. So that's where they will happily go and, you know, invest in new, tool sets and engagements and um, 
I think some of them are kind of gimmicky tricks. Just because you can spin it in 360 doesn't mean you're going to sell more of them every time. <laughs> you know what I mean? But what it does is it introduces... shiny and you, and that industry loves shiny and you, right? So That's it, bro. Um, and they, they make such incredible margins in that industry, you know, especially in your watches, jewelry, and your, your Louis Vuittons of, of the world, that they're always pioneering in that space. And a lot of the technologies that we see today um, have actually evolved from that space. Um, now, like there's there's some great products at the moment on market for doing in-store live chatting, where you're literally talking to the to the merchant on your phone. And that mm -hmm. evolved from a Zoom call into now this real deep CRM integration of product recommendation and uh, clienteling, understanding people's sizes, their preferences, all those kind of things, right? Layer Again, over the top of that, this sort of soul machines, digital human kind of interface that's being rolled yeah. in, right? Where you can have your own personal assistant that knows your preferences, knows what your last purchase was, and you can have a conversation with it and get recommendations and all of that stuff. Like, that's all possible so, right now. So I, I think some of those pieces are great bits of kit. Um, I don't actually believe they will be the future. I think that there is a, a human tendency towards authentic relationships of where people want to be. Um, I want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to a series of questions on a screen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I've had my, they, they've, they've got one of those bits of kits set up at um, Noel Leeming and Newmarket, right? right. It's incredible tech, right? The tech is just crazy. But all that actually happens is my kids start asking them stupid questions. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't actually see real humans engaging with them. They, they walk around the store and they speak to the customer service rep. Um, but, that learnt behaviour takes a lot of time to cross the chasm, right? Mm. So um, I expect that we will end up being in a hybrid version of all of these things. You know, you have to over-index and it comes back to this middle ground mm. where we still want human interactions. We still want real-life engagements, but we kind of want them on our terms, right? So like the worst thing you can do in an e-commerce experience is go and start force-feeding messages down people's throat of, do you want it, do you want it, do you want it, right? And pop up, pop up, pop up, right? But if they've been on there long enough and they've started to engage, it's, it's now a how could I help you? Right? Mm -hmm. So there's that hybrid view of I'm happy to have the first two questions answered by a chatbot. I now expect a real humans come and converse with me. Right. And so, and the business people should be thinking about that experience as well, right? And going, what are absolutely. the one or two pieces of information they're going to make me give this person the most value and validate that they're a genuine customer, not just kicking tires. And bang, you know, then your customer service team or your salespeople are dealing with hot, warmed up leads that digital has managed to um to help you, you know, sort that wheat from the chaff, so to speak. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. All right. Well, I can see we're coming up on uh, on time. Uh, but before we finish up, uh, one big question, get you on the spot. So if I was to start an e-commerce little side hustle um, today, what's the one thing that you you think I should be uh, I know there's there's no right or wrong answer to this but the one thing that you feel should be uh, on my radar define your customer and know your competitors they're in market yeah um, it's a we see a lot of products that are coming out from a space of passion I, I think you know we started on, on on this topic of you're either I can do this cheaper, faster, and at more scale, or I've got something the world has never seen before, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you have to understand both of those. Um, and we see some incredible ideas that fail because they didn't understand their customer. And we see people that go and, you know, you know I've literally seen people who've had the license to sell a product in this country that hasn't been here before. And again, also failed because no one ever asked them if they've heard of that product before. Mm -hmm. So it's really validating the market. Um, 
and kind of don't listen to your mum or your your husband or or your wife. Don't listen to someone who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm. Go and get really true, valid market knowledge from people that have been there and, and done it. Um, and just because they didn't agree with you doesn't mean they're wrong, right? So, um, but it also doesn't mean they're right. You know, if there's enough people that believe in that that, that believe, you'll be okay. Um, I also wouldn't say, I'd say the, the other thing we see going a little bit wrong is people raising money too early. Mm. Um, you do need money. For it right now, right? You yeah. get hammered with it. You go on social. It's like, oh, they just raised 10 million. They just raised 5 million. They just raised 150 million. And you think, fuck, why am I not raising 150 million? I've got a good idea. Well, that's really interesting, Trevor. Like, um, we get fuck all press in market in New Zealand. We've tried mm. connecting with the business herald, the this, the that, right? All of these spaces. But because we have never raised money and there's no, you know, that's my story. Problem, and there's just no story yeah um, which is really interesting because because what they really want is a story is you know trying to assign a net worth to an individual and you're actually kind of trying to polarize in mm. in it's, it's all just clickbait and headline grabbing and and, and it's you painful know, yeah. it, it's it's terrible somebody that maybe there's an opportunity i thought it was medium.com when it first sort of launched i felt like there was some authenticity about this platform mm -hmm. and maybe we found a source of of communication and information that people care about enough to curate, but it seems to be going down the whole clickbait and here's five things that you need to know about and all of that sort of stuff. It'd be nice, I think, and maybe there's a gap in it, I don't know, personal thing, but maybe there's a gap in the market for a source of news that isn't trying to just sell ads, you know? Um, but Well, I think the person who probably does that best in, in New Zealand is someone like Rebecca, you know, who's actually putting out authentic good news and, doesn't seem to give a shit what anyone in the world thinks about him. You know, it's like, here's my opinion, suck it, right? Yeah. Um, and I actually like it if you think I'm wrong because it drives good, active conversation. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, he remains one of those rare humans that you can disagree with and then still go and have a beer with after, right? Like, he's great, man. you know, yeah. and, and, and we need more people like that, I think. So, yeah. I don't think you'll ever see that in mainstream media, though, because um, there still seems to be a bit of a cumulus of we need someone to hate on. There needs to be a enemy in the room in every story to make it almost valid and worthy what of the news. Yeah. What is that? What? It's all poppy what? syndrome so bullshit. Like I really was blown away when I first moved over here and we're probably getting way off topic and yeah. getting into it here. But that that feels like it's a huge, it's a thing here, right? That Kiwis have just got to get the fuck over it. I've genuinely had that first hand of where, you know, we've won, we've been lucky enough to win some big awards. We were like Google's partner of the year last year and Adobe's partner of the year. I'll go to the business desk saying, hey, it'd be really great for my team to get this story out to market. Not interested. Yeah. Two weeks later, one of our merchants might be in the news for whatever reason, either a cash raise or whatever, whatever. And mm -hmm. they start calling me and asking me for comment. And it's like, all you want is filth. All yeah. you really want is, is dirt. Bottom of the barrel um, stuff, yeah. And I actually called one of them out on it. And, and they said, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? I went, yeah, it, it is pretty horrible. He said, but unfortunately, that's human behavior, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we post good news articles, Zero clicks, doesn't get through. We can't serve any ads, right? If we can put something salacious out there, then it gets hammered. The metrics are wrong. Yeah. Why are we measuring clicks and likes and shares? And oh, because like, that's know. what drives their income, mate, right? They, why? They get, paid, they get paid on page views. How many millions of data ads. points could we be measuring success on? Anyway, we're probably opening up a topic for another one, mate. <laughs> we can get into that next I'm topic. definitely getting no fucking coverage from the Herald now if they hear that. <laughs> Uh, great stuff. All, all right, all, it's been awesome uh, chatting with you, Todd. Appreciate you giving up some time, mate. And uh, 
if uh, if if you've been enjoying what you're listening to and you are in e-commerce and you want to try and understand where your place is in the market and how you can grow and scale, then I can't recommend Overdose highly enough. They're an awesome bunch of people to work with and some very smart people in the room there. Um, cheers, mate. Appreciated you. Cheers, dude. See you guys.